0: Well, good morning, everyone. I'll apologize beforehand if I begin coughing. I've been fighting a head cold. Uh, and I'm going to take a drink real quick because nerves. <laughs> well, I trust you've uh, you all had a blessed holiday. Uh, I don't know if you're like me. It went by way too fast, um, not only through the Christmas season, but then New Year's. And now we're already two weeks past. Uh, it's just been kind of a blur, but... During the holiday season, I, I was reintroduced to one of my biggest pet peeves. Uh, I don't know if you can relate, but during the Christmas season when you're out trying to shop and, and the parking lots are jammed full, uh, if you want me to lose my Christianity, this is what you do. Uh, every parking aisle, most parking aisles, have an arrow at the beginning pointing one direction, right? <laughs> All the slots are pointed in the same direction so you can nose in. So. If you ever want to get me, <clears throat> just watch which way I am going down the aisle and then come the other direction. And then just stare at me like there's something wrong with what I've done. Uh, that's, that's one of my pet peeves. Um, so today when Jared asked me to speak, um, and it was through the Christmas season, I, I was reminded of another. Uh, he gave me a topic, uh, or he didn't give me a topic, and, and I thought, well, what's one of my other pet peeves? And, and what I want to introduce today is um, there are several scripture verses that are often taken out of context Uh, They're misused, um, and I think we all do that to some extent, don't we? I mean, let's face it, we we, we take a snippet and we we use it, not always in its proper context. Uh, But some of them are just so egregious, and they're so persistent, and they just really drive me nuts uh, when it happens. So I I have a list of top three, three. you're going to get number three today. Um, Before I get there, though, um, again, it was during the Christmas season, and I came across a really good article by Paul Tripp. Um, talking about the Advent season, and I'm just going to kind of summarize it for you today because I think he really nails the point that I want to hit today, uh, and it really kind of sets up what it is about this verse that, that bugs me to no end. So it was a reminder that during the Advent season, uh, we r- are constantly reminded that it's there's a war between two stories, I, I think. It's a uh, war between two stories, and the aim of each story is, uh, is really to convince our children uh, in a certain way. And then the winner of which story we present to our kids uh, oftentimes defines our, our children's belief about who they are and what they need and what their lives are really about. So uh, the battle between these two stories, one of them is, is very seductive, um, it's attractive, it's glittery, uh, it's very appealing, it's bustling, but fundamentally it's a lie. And then the other story is a very humble story. That's a story of peace and silent nights. Um, it's not very attractive, to be honest with you, uh, but it contains whatever human needs. So I think we're all familiar the, the Christmas story that our society, the world tells our children, uh, puts them at the center, doesn't it? It's uh, the place that should be occupied by God. It's all about what they want. It's it's uh, about fulfillment. It's about um, physical pleasure. Uh, it's about um, the things that we want, uh, as opposed to the story of the need for intervention and rescue of a savior. And it's the, the secular stories de- dominated by the comforts of the moment in ap- opposition to eternal priorities. And it calls uh, our kids to look for comfort in the wrong places and to place their hope in things that can't and never will deliver, as opposed The true Advent story, in contrast, is very humbling. Um, It's a sad story about a world broken by sin, uh, populated by a bunch of self-centered rebels who are willing participants in their own destruction. It's a story of a world in which conditions become so horrible and desperate that God does the unthinkable. He sends his own son on a rescue mission to rescue those who are lost and walking in darkness. And because we're so lost, so enslaved, so self-deceived, there was no other way. It's a story of contrast. It's the stories of the wants of the here and now versus the requirements and desires of eternity. So with that background, with that backdrop, the verse that we're going to be studying today is Romans 8.28, part of the passage that um, was read today. It says, God works all things to the good, of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes." Well when you look at that verse it is it's a wonderful promise isn't it? It's a terrific promise and it's uh, from a God who loves us uh, and uh, and and we should take comfort in that. So what's the problem? And I just ask you to take the differenti- differentiation between the two Christmas stories and apply it to this verse then as we look at the, um, the verse in a little bit deeper uh, and as we examine the content, then we'll understand its intent. So, the first issue that I have with this verse and the way it's taken often lies in the definition of good. Not just the what, what is good, but also the who, who gets to determine what is good. So, I'm going to answer the second question first who gets to define what is good? Well, I'm going to assume most everyone in here is a Sunday school graduate. Um, I was reminded of a joke this this past week at our community life group about the little boy in Sunday school and uh, the typical answer is Jesus to everything right and the teacher is describing a, a furry animal that collects nuts and you 've heard this i 'm sure uh, if you haven't i 'm not going to waste a lot of time here, but you can catch me afterwards but the obvious answer to the the Sunday school is looking for is squirrel, and the little boy says, "I know the answer is squirrel, uh, but I know the answer is Jesus so Um, In a room full of Sunday School graduates, again, I know we know the answer to my question, and it's God that should be able to determine what is good. But again, the problem is that we want or think we have the right or the proper ability to determine what's good, and I suggest that we are wrong on all counts. See, the problem with we is that it elevates us above the omniscient, all-knowing, all-present God, right? Um, The king of the universe who sees everything, the beginning from the end, uh, who stands outside of time, um, he also reminds us that his ways are higher than our own, and yet we, with our limited understanding, think that we can properly define what is good. And another issue with us deciding what is good is a little problem called our sin nature. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us that our hearts are desperately wicked, uh, deceitful above all things, who can know it? So we are easily self-deceived self-dece- um, and, and along with the fact that we just can't know every facet, uh, two things, two strikes against us in, in defining what is good. So again, and noted it in our comparison of the Dueling Christmas Stories, we are selfish cr- creatures driven by selfish motives, We want what we want, and not necessarily what's good for us. And it can become about our comfort, our success, our pleasure, our fill in the blank. Uh, But what we have to remember is that our good is subordinate to the purpose of God. Some of you would come into the office last year, uh, and you would see the Bible I was using for my my scripture reading, and it's called The Story of God, and that's 100% accurate. But the problem is we want to make it a story of me or us we become the focus of the universe and not the god who created us and called us according to his purpose and in the end the creature ends up being worshipped rather than the creator well the problem with this elevation of we can be summed up in one word and that word is idolatry so the two things the fact that we can't know ultimately what is good and that we're sinful creatures help to define the who God alone is the one who gets to define what good is. So now we're going to answer the second question. What is meant by good? Well, as mentioned, there's a push today to make life all about me. Uh, you'll get the illusion. I don't have to go too far back and I'm not going to mention names, but all of a sudden life becomes all about our best life now. Uh, and we know that that's not the case. Uh, I think that's a very low bar, to be honest with you. How many people out here have traveled to a third-world country, either mission trip or business or whatever? So I think that if you've been there, you can see the contrast. American Christians, I think, especially, are prone to take tests such as Romans 8.28. And we have an expectation of comfortable lives, uh, a certain level of affluence, and of good health. But... Uh, our last mission trip was to Haiti. And I can tell you, uh, or the slums of Costa Rica, we went before that, that there is no such expectation. Um, Their daily provision is what they look forward to. So we have a tendency in this country uh, to, to look for these material blessings and to measure spirituality on the basis of those things. But you go to one of these third world countries and that expectation disappears pretty rapidly. And again, that's not the good that Paul had in mind, and it's not the goal of the Christian life. So God, the one who gets to decide the definition of good, has a higher purpose in mind. And it's not that he doesn't desire us to have stuff. It's not that. If you're familiar with uh, Matthew 6, the end of chapter 6, he tells us if we seek God and his righteousness, all else will be added to us. He knows that we need things, so it's not the total opposition of stuff, material blessings. It's that he desires that our stuff doesn't own us, right? I I was drawn to another verse in Matthew 16, where Jesus asks a question, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? From there, I was drawn to Psalm 73. and I'm just going to give you a snippet of it in in a second, but when you read it, the psalmist questions why the wicked prosper. Uh, and the psalm, the psalm is a reminder that to us, material blessing is not necessarily a sign of blessing. But then again, the converse is also not true. The lack of material blessing isn't a sign of not having blessing. Because uh, a few uh, chapters earlier, Jesus had commended a widow for giving the equivalent of a penny as an act of worship. Uh, from giving from her lack. So we can't draw conclusions from either side. The wicked do prosper, uh, and sometimes the, the godly don't have what we would consider material blessings. So let's take a look at Psalm 73. I, I've condensed and taken a few verses here. Um, the psalmist says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And again, this is just a small snippet. Um, but notice in the beginning of the psalm, Asaph is completely wrong in his definition of good. He sees the wicked and wondered why they prospered. He thought good must be understood in terms of peace, prosperity, and a comfortable life. And he thought of good in terms of pleasure and the absence of pain, and more in terms of this present life than eternity. Which, again, sounds a lot like modern America. But then we need to read the rest of uh, Psalm 73. The final two verses, uh, verses 27 and 28, Uh, Asaph realizes and recognizes Uh, that he was wrong in the beginning. For It says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near my God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Again, in the end, Asaph realized uh, that while his suffering drew him near to God, the prosperity of the wicked only drove them away from God. I'm reminded of the Israelites in the Old Testament. God warned them before they ever took possession of the land. When you come into this land and you begin to prosper, you'll forget the Lord your God. And that's, uh, uh, we oftentimes think of material blessing in this country as, as a blessing, but sometimes I wonder if it's not uh, just the opposite, things that can draw us away from the Lord. So anyway, <clears throat> Asaph's definition of good changed from a warm, fuzzy feeling uh, now to enjoying God's presence, and from now to all of eternity. He saw that suffering draws one nearer to God, uh, and it's good. He recognized that if prosperity and the absence of pain turns one from God, that it's evil. And we need to learn to define good, as Asaph Asaph did did in the terms of eternity and in the terms of intimacy with God. From... Psalm 73 and Asaph, I want to jump over to the uh, book of James, because James, uh, this is also the theme of his book, uh, at least in chapter 1, his readers are also suffering, uh, while the ungodly rich were prospering at their expense. So a couple of verses from James 1, James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then James drives the point home uh, with view towards eternity in verse 12. He says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So again, what does God then see as good? I've used the uh, some a few other Passages to answer that question, uh, but it's also answered by God in our passage from Romans, which Marvin read. He says, um, "Oh, and before I get there, we're going to read some verses, and and I'm going to leave the heavy lifting to Jared. But you you could preach four, at least four sermons from Romans 8:28 itself. So I'm going to let Jared do the uh, predestination and the called and the justification and the, the big words." Um, for my point today, we're focusing strictly on the the misuse of, of a twenty-eight. So um, you'll forgive me if it's uh, not quite Jared up here. But so we look at the the surrounding verses in uh, in Romans eight, uh, and we read the the verses immediately following. We see Paul referencing God's sovereignty again, his calling, his predestination, justification, and glorification. Um, it's enough for me now to point out that Paul's guaranteeing the surety of our salvation uh, to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. One is us, we love God, and that's, that's speaking of Christians, those who love God. The other is completely God's part, called according to his purpose. I think that's an important distinction to make, and, and uh, at the end I hope to come back to that. But I want you to notice the past tenses uh, that Paul used. Justified, the moment of our salvation and glorified which happens the day we're called home so there's a process in between called sanctification and we're going to come back to that but I want you to notice the the past tenses it's a done deal Paul's so certain that it will take place that he speaks of our glorification a future event um, as a done deal as something that's already occurred so with that background what is good well according to Romans 8 God, uh, good includes our salvation, our sanctification, and our future full adoption as the sons of God. And again, this will take place after we have been prepared and proven by suffering. The good which is spoken of here is not so much our present happiness as our holiness. God defined good for us in the following verse, verse 29. It says, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The good is not our comfort, wealth or health, it's conformity to Christ. This good is then fully defined in the following verse, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Ultimately, all things work together to bring each Christian to conformity to Christ, and then following conformity to Christ, our salvation at the end, where we are fully glorified. So, for all of the high concepts, it comes down to, really, the sanctification and glorification. If I could sum it up in in two words this morning... This is the good. It's the long sanctification, the lifelong process of being refined, transformed, and conformed, made into the image of God, into the image of Christ. Uh, And then verses 29 and 30 also speak to our conformity in Christ and our glorification as, again, the inevitable outcome of those who love God. And you have to note in the verse that it's not dependent on how much we love God. It's completely His work. Um, as he works in us, and the finished work of Christ on the cross. One other verse to just kind of flesh out this point, Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God has been working in us, and will continue to do so until we enter glory. God working all things for the good of those who love him. So again, according to this passage, God has two purposes for those he calls his children. Their transformation to the likeness of Christ and their salvation. Again, it's a classic New Testament tension between now but not yet. We live in the now and we look forward to the not yet. But the not yet is eternity. Uh, eternity is God's end game, and that's not to say that God hasn't or won't give us good gifts in the material world. I, I want to make sure everybody understands. I'm not setting such a narrow parameter. The Scripture tells us that God. The, is the Father in heaven who gives good things to those who ask Him, uh, and that He desires to good, give good gifts to those uh, in this world. It's just that's not His focus. Those are a result, again, of, of seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. It's, his desire is not to focus on the material blessing. It's to focus on eternity. And when we focus on the pleasures and success in this world, they tend to be very fleeting don't they we're happy one moment we get a new toy at christmas and two weeks later if you have kids or grandkids you know it's forgotten quickly but that's the same way with success and pleasure and peace they always seem to be just out of reach when we make them the end game so i'm going to go back to matthew 6 again where we're reminded to seek first that's in prominence and that's in sequence The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all else will be added to you. Sometimes we take these things for granted. How many of us have good health? A nice car, good friends. They are all God-given. But again, his overall concern is to help us to become spiritual creatures, not fleshly ones. There's a problem when we begin to focus on the material world and the, the things of the flesh, the things of the world, in uh, this verse from uh, earlier in chapter 8, verse 5, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot... Please God. So again, when we read Romans 8, in context, we're given a positive answer to the questions of pain and suffering in the world. When we see through natural eyes, we see a cost to those things. Things are painful. We don't want to deal with them. Jared covered that quite well in 1 Peter. I don't have to re- recount that for you. But we see a cost to pain and suffering. And I think rightly so, none of us really want to endure those things. But if we learn to see with spiritual eyes, we can learn to see great gain. We may see nothing good come of misery and disaster in this world, but this world is not all of reality. So I'm going to take a second in your, uh, in your bulletin. You came across a, a little postcard. I think it's a, a tremendous illustration. If you're like age 32 or older, you might remember these things. They were all the craze in the early to mid-90s. Uh, They're called magic eye. So this is a great illustration of what I'm talking about. On the surface, just like in the natural world, there's some beautiful colors. Uh, You can really no pattern to it on a lot of them, but um, it's it's interesting to look at. But when we learn to look a little differently, learn to refocus our eyes a little bit, we actually discover that there's a, a picture within a picture. And that's sort of like looking in the natural world. And then learning to see into the spiritual realm. Uh, I don't mean to make that sound weird, but <laughs> I can see. Let me just say, if, if you didn't get one of these, and you see somebody getting frustrated right about now, <laughs> I can guarantee they'll give you their, their postcard. Or if you really don't like somebody, you know, and you can't get it, just send it to them and have them get frustrated. <laughs> But this is really a, a picture of the, of the the natural versus spiritual. We can get so focused on the things in front of us, the things we can see, that we lose sight of the God's bigger picture, the, the spiritual realm. Um, Paul, you can go ahead and uh, put that next one up there. So if you're wondering what I'm talking about, this is you don't have this exact picture, most of you, but this is what you're kind of looking for if you've never seen this before. Uh, and if, if the young people get hooked, I want royalties from uh, Magic Eye because anyway so again it's it's a tremendous illustration of of the the natural versus the spiritual and it's just a matter of refocusing again in the natural we can see suffering and pain as a negative as it costs something to us but the the spiritual realm then asks what can i learn from what i'm going through see if we define good as only what we can see in life then we've missed the whole point of the text Paul said earlier in chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And again, it's that classic New Testament tension that I mentioned earlier, the now but not yet. It ties together both our beginning verse, verse 18, and our clo- one of our closing verses, verse 30, where Paul said the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with glory. Uh, those are the things to be revealed to us. And then verse 30, again, he speaks of it as a done deal. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're in the pros, uh, um, process of, of being changed right now. He's working in our lives now. That's the sanctification. But it won't be fully revealed uh, until we are glorified when we go home. So again, you might ask, how does God work all things for good? And what then is good in God's sight? I think it's important here to stop and say that it's important to notice that the text does not say that all things are good, but that he uses all things for good. Each event in our life uh, can be like an ingredient in a cake. I've heard this illustration, maybe you have too. Uh, If you've ever eaten the raw egg or the baking soda or the oil or the shortening, those by themselves are not good. But when you put them all together, Uh, it makes something delicious, right? Well, and I don't know, uh, I'm sure a chef can explain that process to you, how it all comes together. And in the same way, even the bad things in our lives, God is working and blending to make something good. Um, So it may not seem good by itself, but when it's mixed by God, it, it, it does. It produces what is good. And we need to be clear that bad things that happen to us, again, are not good in and of themselves, and we shouldn't call them good. Uh, that's to diminish someone's pain. So uh, these things are difficult. Um, if someone sins against us, they did evil. Uh, the death of a loved one is hard. And again, just walking through the holidays, I know a lot of people struggled with that. Um, but in the, the midst of these things, God in his gracious providence can use these things. He can use the terrible things and work them together for our good as we submit to him and trust him. And he can use them to show us his grace and his love in ways that we wouldn't have otherwise known them. He can deepen our faith in ways that we would have never learned otherwise, except through the trial. And in all of it, again, he's working for our ultimate good to conform us to the image of his son. So again, the text is, context is the key to understanding the verse. And I think of Paul when I, I think of suffering. Um, if we think about Paul uh, if you know anything about him you can go back to 2nd Corinthians and you can read about a few things that Paul went through Uh, I'll just mention a few of them he says he was imprisoned he was beaten he was stoned he was shipwrecked he spent a night and a day adrift at sea in danger from rivers danger from robbers danger from his own people danger from the Gentiles danger in the city danger in the wilderness danger at sea danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So if someone knew suffering, it was the Apostle Paul. But what was the result? If we're familiar with Paul, we know that he learned to rely on and trust God for his protection and his provision. Uh, he learned that in his weakness, God was shown strong. And he learned to be content, he says, in all times, in all circumstances, whether in times of plenty or times of lack. Uh, In fact, scripture even reminded us that uh, godliness with contentment is great gain. So these are some things that Paul learned through suffering and trials. How about some others? Well, quickly, Jesus. How about Jesus? Did he learn anything in his suffering? Well, I'm glad you asked because Hebrews 5.8 tells us that Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. How about the Israelites? Did they learn anything as they wandered through the desert for 40 years? Well, we know from Scripture that their sandals didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out. God provided supernaturally their food. Uh, We we know about the manna. We know how he blew the quail in for meat, uh, water from rocks. Uh, They learned that the Lord provides, among other things. That the Lord was their protection, that the Lord was their shield and their fortress. And I think it's important also now to to mention that it's not just trials and sufferings that God uses either. The all things also includes evil things that other people do to us. It includes at times Satan's attacks by which he hopes to destroy us. But again, God uses all things for good to those who love him and are called to his purpose. When we think about someone doing evil to someone. I I think of Joseph. I don't know about you as an illustration, but Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, They acted sinfully towards him. Uh, Joseph was treated poorly by others, Uh, definitely not treated well by Mr. Potiphar, even worse by Mrs. Potiphar. Um, And he could have wallowed in his suffering uh, that he experienced. And yet we're familiar with what Joseph said, uh, and he he understood the truth of Romans 8.28. Um, at the end of the the ordeal, he could tell his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The all things of Romans 8.28 also includes our own failures and our own sins. It includes not only our suffering for the cause of Christ, but the suffering which results from our own sin and stupidity. God can use our sinning and our backsliding for our good too. Now, I have to say as a Christian, I don't think a Christian Uh, who's walking closely with the Lord can continue in sin without having their conscience tormented. And I'm not saying that we should sin more so that God's grace can abound more. And we should never sin with a thought that, well, God will work it for the good of me anyway. Those are not things that I'm saying. I am saying that God can use the times when we return from our rebellion to show us mercy and grace to new levels. And again, I think, as an example he can teach he can use our sin to teach us not to trust in ourselves uh, as he did in his uh, with Peter in his denials right um, Peter learned that uh, his own self sufficiency was not sufficient after all and I think another great example of this is the prodigal son. I don't think the son would have ever experienced his father in the same way the depth of his love, the depth of his mercy. Uh, as he did the day that he returned after coming to his senses and returning home. Uh, he learned Dad in, in a whole new way, in a deeper way. So no matter what our situation, our suffering, our persecution, our sinful failure, our pain, our lack of faith. In those things, as well as in all other things, God will work to produce our ultimate victory and blessing. Again, all things include circumstances and events that are good and beneficial in themselves, as well as those that are in themselves ha- evil and harmful. So again, I asked the question in the title of the sermon, your best life now or later? And the answer is both. In the now, it just doesn't look like we always want it to look, does it? especially again in this country where we're accustomed to material blessing and then the later i doubt any among of us think really think if we think about it at all that this is our best life um, and if it is uh, that's really kind of sad but i have good news for you you're in for a big surprise so if i can again offer a brief re- recap into some of the things that god might be trying to accomplish through the all things Again, we come to appreciate his righteousness even more. In chapter 3 of Romans, Paul wrote, If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. And in the context of Romans, Paul has been showing that God is faithful to his promises to Israel despite their sin and unbelief. And compared to the unfaithful wickedness of Israel, God's righteousness shines that much brighter. We could never fully understand God's righteousness if we weren't familiar with our own unrighteousness. Another thing that can work for our good, we come to appreciate God's love at a deeper level. Just like the prodigal son learned to appreciate his father at a deeper level, Paul reminds us in chapter 5 of Romans, But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us a little bit later he reminds us that we were God's enemies how else could he show the depth of his great love that rescues not people that are friendly and inclined toward him but also enemies and sinners that were actively working against him how else would we know his love if there were no enemies to rescue and the same way we can't truly appreciate light until you've experienced darkness or heat until you've experienced cold, I don't think we can truly experience God's love until we've experienced the lack of it. Uh, and we know from our own depravity what we can do uh, in, that, uh, in that environment. See, the presence of our wickedness provided the perfect opportunity for God to display his wrath and justice. And instead, he loved the sinners enough to send Jesus to die in our place. So what are some other things? What are some other things God could be using as good in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our tribulations, in the midst of our failures? Um, We've mentioned some already. We mentioned Paul and contentment. We mentioned Jesus and obedience, uh, a new appreciation of understanding of God's mercy and grace, God's provision and protection. That's not an exhaustive list. I'm sure that we, all of us can think back to some unpleasant event in our lives, and with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that God has brought about because of it. Uh, for some of us, maybe not enough time has passed for perspective to have developed. Maybe you haven't been given the blessing or the mercy to see what God was doing yet. And still others, it might be that we don't see what the good was until we reach eternity. But it's a good question to ask ourselves. Maybe in the midst of losing a well-paying secure job, maybe it breaks the hold of a materialistic mindset. Maybe the end of an engagement saves us from missing a ministry opportunity that would have been impossible for a married person. The key is again to refocus our eyes, take our eyes off the immediate and learn to see with spiritual vision. What could God be using uh, in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this tribulation, so I'll finish with a question. How about you? What are suffering? What suffering are you undergoing? And again, God didn't promise that everything would, would be good, but that He would use it for our good. And what is good trying to do in you or through you or what you're experiencing? What is it that God might be trying to teach us? What lesson is there in our sufferings for us to learn? What aspect of our character needs shaping to conform us to the image of the sun? And again, because of our perspective, what we think may be good may actually be harmful. We had our grandkids over the other night, and um, for dinner they wanted ice cream. (laughs) And I'm sure you can can, uh, relate to that. Uh, They would think ice cream and potato chips would be a great dinner. But we know, because of our perspective, having lived it uh, and what we know now, that that would be to their harm, not to their good, right? So as I close, I want you to take a second to consider the, a, a tapestry. Now, if you're familiar with needlepoint at all, imagine the backside of it and the knots and the tangles and the, the threads that just seem to have no pattern whatsoever. In fact, it looks like just a jumbled mess. Um, you look at it from the back side, and there's no way you can distinguish what you're looking at, right? There's just no way. And in fact, you wonder, if you, if you thought that was the pattern, you would wonder what the person creating it was thinking when they, when they just made the knots and the, and the undiscernible um, threads. But if you were to look at it from the front side, you would see then, right? You would see a beautiful picture. You would see what the author, or the the artist had, or the needlepoint, or whoever's creating it, um, had in mind, and then the jumble on the backside begins to make sense. And that's a lot like our perspective. We're seeing from down here; we see the bottom of the tapestry. We don't have God's perspective. God's looking from the top. He sees what He's doing. So we see a tangle of knots. We see jumbled-up thread. We see a pattern that makes no discernible sense to ourselves but God sees it. God sees it. And that's what's important. And he's promised to use those things for our good. So it comes down to a matter of trust. Do we trust that the God who has the perspective to see all things, how everything interacts, he's sovereign, he's provident. Do we trust the God that sees that to make sense of the jumbled mess that we see from underneath? That's what it comes down to. So again, if you if you look from the bottom, you, you see these threads. And with that imagery, image of the tapestry in mind, I, I'm just going to close now. Uh, I'll ask the, the group to come on up. I'm going to close with the final verse uh, that we read today, and it's verse 31. And it says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul forms that in the form of a rhetorical question, a, a question that obviously demands a no answer. Uh, no one can be against us. But what makes it so powerful is that it's built on an unshakable foundational presupposition. It's an anchor for us to cling to in every storm. And again, it's a promise to God, from God to us and it's summed up in four simple words. I'm gonna leave you with this thought as you leave this place today. And that's just that God is for us. Amen. Amen.